Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, with Pastor John King. Hello. Uh, one thing to add to the uh, announcements, this, this Wednesday night, for those of you especially who are regular uh, attenders on Wednesday night, uh, we're going to be showing a 45-minute sermon video of a, uh, a message, a recent message by Pastor uh, Gary Hamrick up in uh, uh, Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. And he's going to, he did such a great job with his message that we're going to show it here because he's going to talk about, uh, the title is uh, Israel, Hamas, and uh, Biblical Prophecy. And he does a really great job because, uh, you know, as believers, we have a lot of uh, access to a lot of information um, concerning the conflicts of the world today. And there's a lot of people out there giving all kinds of different, uh, their different take on it. But we have, we have to remember, we need to look at Israel through the lens of Scripture and the lens of prophecy. And so I would encourage you guys, if you don't normally attend Wednesday night, uh, it, it would be worth your while to come and uh, just to be together in fellowship as we uh, reinforce uh, these principles and see what, what is really going on. You know, is, uh, you see all kinds of crazy stuff. Is, is the Antichrist alive today and who is he? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, what about Ezekiel 38 and 39, 36 through 38? Uh, is this the coming of Gog and Magog to invade Israel? All those kind of things uh, he covers, and he also gives a really good history lesson on Israel as a nation from the very beginning to our present day. So I really would like to see uh, some good participation. If you can make time in your schedule, I think you will be blessed to see that. Okay, that's enough of my announcements. Let's move on to today's word. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And uh, wouldn't you know it, my uh, little device here is acting funny. But we got, you know what? You know what we have when that happens? We have paper. <laughs> See, always be ready. I'm not just killing trees by doing this. You know that, right? You guys know that. Okay. So here we are. You guys know that I like to use notes. Um, but as you're turning there, last week, last week we covered and we got started in what is most likely Paul's first letter ever written to one of the churches that he helped to establish. Uh, near the end of his second missionary journey, after a series of events, and you guys, if you follow through the book of Acts, you know that he was jailed. Uh, he was uh, uh, the cause of riots. He was run out of town by his own people. Uh, he would debate the intellectuals. And now he's finally settled down in the southern Greek city of Corinth. And he apparently cannot shake his concern for this church in Thessalonica. And so he sent Timothy back to check on them. So this letter was written by Paul after he received Timothy's report about what was going on up there in this little church in Thessalonica. In chapter 1, Paul remembers how the church at Thessalonica was born. Uh, he encouraged them concerning their identity in Christ. You know, that's, that's one of the, the key, uh, you know, important things about our walk with Jesus is our identity in Christ. And so he encourages them and if you, you know, it's sort of a continuation of the, uh, in the introduction to the letter. He knew uh, that they 
their grace and salvation, how important that was to them. And the continued work in their lives, not just from salvation, but as we walk in the Lord, His grace continually propels us through our walk and our journey here. And he also, you know, talked about them experiencing the peace of God. This is a sense of wholeness or spiritual well-being. We use the word, the, the Hebrew word shalom sometimes for that. And Paul is happy to cite the evidence of God's loving election. We talked about the doctrine of election last week into his kingdom. And the evidence was, and it always will be for a believer, how do you know you're saved? Well, by your works, by the fruit in your life. And he says, you know, the things that him and his companions are constantly giving thanks for and praying to the Lord about. They're a church that evangelizes all around their countryside. They're a church uh, that not only reaches the immediate area in Macedonia, but they're in the southern parts of Greece, in Ikea. And one of the most notable aspects of their conversion is that they've turned from God to, uh, from, uh, to God, excuse me, they've turned to God from idols. And we're going to talk a little bit about it later. This was a very idolatrous culture. And, and they did this despite the persecution of their families and society. And we see in our day today how religious persecution can happen. We see it all around, and we see the work of the enemy uh, turning against people. And, and basically, you see the world devouring one another in many cases because of the works of the enemy. And this, this, the thing that's behind these idols, these false gods, is Satan himself. And so instead of caving into the pressure to change, and this is where we are maybe some places today, we're in the pressure to change who we are in Christ, to, to change God's word, to bring a softer message to the world around us. And they refuse to do that. And then we finished in verse 10. If you look at that, it says we, we are going to be delivered. Jesus, he says, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And we're always going to be reminded as we go through Thessalonians that it speaks of a future time when Jesus will return for his church, the rapture. And it also speaks in Thessalonians, we're going to be speaking quite a bit about Jesus' second coming to establish his millennial kingdom and his reign. Now, for today, we will see something that's very important. Very important for you, very important for me. And uh, as one, one writer put it this way, in this passage we see that the truth of the gospel is confirmed by the integrity of its preachers. Those who represent Christ, those who stand up here and preach God's word in pulpits all around the world my integrity, the integrity of those who teach. But we're also going to learn that you as well have responsibilities. Maybe you don't have a public meet, uh, preaching ministry, but you have a responsibility, whether it's in your home, in your workplace. You are a leader to someone, whether you're raising children, whatever it is that you do. And so we all share in this responsibility. And so today's message is a remarkable look at Paul's personal thoughts and his thought life from 2,000 years ago as he defends his ministry from the accusations of these Jewish religious leaders on two aspects. If you're taking notes, there will be two aspects of Paul's message today that we're going to cover. The first is, um, the two aspects, it's going to be, his, first of all, his preaching ministry and his pastoral ministry. We're going to talk about those two main topics. 
And the reason why he's having to do this is because the critics of their day were apparently going around and badmouthing Paul about everything that he had to say, calling him a liar, a charlatan. And he were trying to lump Paul in to what was very prevalent in the society during that, that day. And that was a, just a, basically a bunch of religious hucksters all around in this ancient society trying to get a following and to deceive people. So let's read our passage. We're going to cover verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, that we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Verse 7, But we were gentle among you, just as the nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Lord, we believe here that your word transforms our lives. Your word conforms our lives. Your word is a light unto our path. Lord, we know that if we trust in you and we obey your word, Lord, that our life may not go easy, but it will certainly be uh, in your will. Lord, we know that we can stay in your will despite anything that can happen to us, Lord, by just simply reading and studying and, and applying your word to our lives. And so, Lord, may that be the case today as we study your word once again. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when you look at Paul's, and, and this is a good, um, this is a good template for an evaluation. Uh, you, you know, you guys are, you're, you, you guys evaluate whether you come to this church by your presence. Okay, you vote with your feet. We're not a voting congregation, so you guys vote with your feet. You either walk in, or you walk out and don't come back, and that's how it is. And so you guys can, if somebody says, well, what, what about the preaching at Calvary Chapel? Is it biblical? Well, here's another way you can measure that by looking at, the, and I can measure it as well. I can look at Paul's teaching and how he preached and brought God's word, and I can compare it to the way that I conduct myself and I preach God's word. And you can do the same thing wherever you go, whoever you listen to, wherever you study the word, whoever you sit under in uh, teaching, you can use this as an evaluation tool. So that's what you have today. You have, you get to do a critique. Are you glad you get to do that? You happy for that? 
Come on now, you guys. I see people smiling. That's very nice. I appreciate that. So, first of all, his preaching contained substance and truth. That's the first thing. He says, For you know yourselves, brethren, and now he's talking to fellow believers, um, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, you're going to see through this passage that Paul, he continually says, you know, brethren, or as you know. And so he's, he's sort of like preaching to the choir because they know the work of the gospel that was done in their church. But they also know that Paul is responding to his critics. And so he's trying to encourage them. And he says, he, know, he says, you know, dear brethren, that our coming was not in vain. And what is that? You know, that, that in vain, meaning... Uh, to be vain is to be fruitless, to have no effect whatsoever. You, know, you, you, may, you may come under somebody's teaching where they're just simply spouting platitudes and words, and they're very good at presenting them, but they don't have any effect on your life. It goes one ear in one ear and out the other. I know sometimes parents, we feel that way, don't we? And grandparents. But why, uh, why is Paul, I've already said, he's reminding them of his conduct, and it's because he has enemies coming against the message of the gospel. So it, was, it contained substance and truth. It was also brought with commitment and conviction. It was brought with commitment and conviction. He says, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, by the way, he reminds him again. Not only did the Thessalonians know about this event. It was known by everyone in the area. I mean, after all, there was a great mob up in Philippi. Uh, what, what, what could not have been spread around Greece but this event that took place very recently where a man came in. There was this great mob. I'm referring to Philippi. We're going to read about it here in a minute. But, you know, in Philippi, they were created a, uh, the stir. They were locked up, and then they were miraculously released from jail because there was an earthquake. Now, don't, don't think that they didn't all feel the earthquake in the area. And they were miraculously released from the jail. So everybody knew what was happening, but Paul's explaining how they were, as he says, spitefully treated. They were treated shamefully. So just as a reminder, this is how they were treated. Look in verse, Acts 16, verses 20 through 24. This is what happened to Paul and his companions, Paul and Silas. It says, and they brought them before the magistrates. And then this is what they said as they accused them. They said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. You know, they were simply bringing the gospel bringing the gospel message and explaining that Jesus Christ was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that goes against a government that worships an emperor and people that are forced to worship an emperor. And so the reaction was in verse 22. It says, Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So here's Paul, you know, months later, he's writing this, this letter, and it's not that long past. And he still feels the bruises on his back. He still feels the stripes that were laid upon him. And he's like, you know, he says, so when he says, when we suffered before, you know, why would I invite this kind of trouble if I'm just simply tricking people, if I'm simply just to, to, to achieve my own gain? 
Years later, when Paul wrote this letter uh, to the Philippian church, and we already went through the uh, letter to the Philippians, he wrote this letter to the church while he was in his first time he was locked up in Rome, the first, his first jailing. And he explained to the Philippian church, now this is way later, remember, he's writing to the Thessalonians very early, but he writes the, to the Philippians 10 years later. And he's writing to the Philippian church and he explains to them how he had lost his religion. You remember that? How he had lost his faith in his Jewish religion and all his self-righteousness. And he gave that up for a relationship with Jesus that had a surpassing worth. And he described it as being, it was so great despite the fact that it brought this kind of suffering on him. And you may remember the passage, Philippians 3, 10 and 11. He says, this was his motivation. He says, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Paul fully embraced the fact that he would be persecuted for the cause of Christ. And he embraced that with a heart. And so here's a pastor, here's a preacher, an apostle, who brought the word of God with bona fide commitment and conviction. He, he was bringing the word. So preachers, we bring the word by the Lord's strength, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with commitment and conviction. He also said that we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. He was confident to speak boldly and freely. But notice he wasn't self-confident. This is a mistake that many of us make. We can become self-confident even in our service to the Lord. It's because, and it's also not based on, on talent or skills. It's not based on the ability to speak to hundreds and hundreds of people with great oratory, oratory skill. It's not because Paul for sure was a dynamic communicator when it came to what we would, you know, how we would standardize it. I was listening to uh, Pastor Tony Clark, uh, Calvary Chapel, Newport News, talk about the historical description of Paul. Now, Paul was a kind of a hunchback guy with a hooked nose, and he had a super high, squeaky voice. He wasn't a, a, the kind of person that you, know, you would think people would come to hear speak. He wasn't a dynamic personality in that regard. But boy, did he come with the commitment. Boy, was he willing to serve and with conviction. And then he says, to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now, conflict really talks about what you already know. It's the things we see. Any struggle with danger, annoyances, any obstacle standing in the way of the faith, in this case. And so Paul is referring to what they witnessed in him and his companions as they went through Thessalonica. And in other words, it, despite being mobbed, beaten and jailed in Philippi, they still had the boldness and the confidence to preach the gospel in Thessalonica. Most people would have said, we're done. <laughs> we're going home now. That was enough. Thank you, Lord, for your miraculous delivery from the jail, but I can't take this anymore. I'm coming off the mission field. Aren't you glad he didn't say that? Amen. Church planting is a challenge in any environment. Um, even in, a, even in a free society, you know, we live in a, in a land of churches. We live in the Bible Belt here in the South. It's a wonderful place to live. 
And we have churches all around us. But even in a free society, and those of you who may have been attending here at Calvary Chapel for a, 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 a time, um, I just want to remind you that our church here, our fellowship, started in a home fellowship in 2005 at Pastor Keith and Angie Radke's house. And then it went to the church, the fellowship grew from that home fellowship to rented spaces, and we rented a couple spots over here in Mildred's Plaza. Uh, then there was, a, uh, there was a kind of an arrangement with another church on South 17 where we shared space. So there was a continuous every Sunday we met in the evenings, on Sunday evenings. And so every, every time you came to church, you were either setting up or tearing down uh, the, you know, for your service. And these, then we went into these leased spaces. We came, we came back here to Mildred's Plaza. But everyone knew it was temporary. And this went on for nine more years. It wasn't until 2014 that we came here. And the point is this, uh, it takes men and women with commitment and conviction to plant and establish churches. Why? Because it demands dedication and it demands energy. Now, when the church of Calvary Chapel was first planted, one of the church planters who has gone to be with the Lord now, uh, he said, you know, look around the room at the time. And I remember it being told to me, I'd met him, but we came later. We came, Margaret and I came in 2007. He said, look around the room. Uh, to all the people that were planting this church. He says, you know, within five years, no, nobody else will be here. It'll be a whole new group of people. And that's certainly turned out to be true. I don't think there's a single person left that came from the original Bible study. But see, that's how God works. People, you know, plant churches. And that's what Paul was doing. He was going around and planting churches. So I just, I thought it was important to point out the, the dedication and the energy that it takes to plant a church and to remind us to be thankful because we know that the work of God, when God's in it, it's worth it, isn't it? Amen. Amen. That's right. Amen. Anyway, a little rabbit trail for you. Bold preaching, though. What does that mean? Bold preaching means to preach the gospel of God. In other words, in our day, it's the word of God. They didn't have Bibles yet then. They had letters from the apostles and they had the Old Testament writings. We, uh, we always need to be reminded what bold preaching is. 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul's exhortation to this young pastor, he said, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. So that's what bold preaching is. But let me say, uh, as a pastor, what bold preaching is not. Bold preaching is not a place for me to deal with my critics. I don't have the right to come up here and use this as a bully pulpit to try and bring this full range of politics into the mix. That's not what God's called me to do. He's called me to bring your word, God's word, to his people. Now you might want to say, well, wait a minute. Uh, aren't topics like abortion political? Because we do. We support, uh, we're pro-life. We have special messages on that sometimes. And the answer is, in our day and age, no. Uh, abortion is not political because we now live in a society that has ta taken morality issues like the murder of children and same sex and trans and all this other stuff and made it political. So the society around us has now made it political. But when you take morality, it doesn't change the fact that it's a moral issue. And the church and the Bible will always deal with moral issues. They'll always do that. 
And it can be a temptation for me and for other pastors to affirm sinful lifestyles simply in order to grow our church and to avoid the hassle or the perceived or real government pressure. Now, thankfully, we live in an area where we don't have government pressure. But it doesn't take you long to look around our land and to look out west and see what's happened to churches, especially during the COVID shutdowns. Or look north to see what happened in Canada during the COVID shutdowns. We have pastors that did some jail time in Canada because they decided to keep their churches open during that time. Uh, let, me, let me put a plug out. I, I want to do this. I don't normally do this. There's a movie out there called The Essential Church. You can rent it. You can stream it. You can buy the video. It's a wonderful, about a two-hour presentation that talks about the essential church. It talks about how churches, what they went through uh, during the pandemic and how the government was very oppressive in some areas to try and shut down the churches. You guys all kind of remember that. You're thinking, why do you got to bring that up again? Well, it's a good reminder for us that the church is essential, that it is important that we come together as like-minded believers and encourage one another and to be in the room together. And what they tried to do during that time, and, and you know, a lot of people didn't understand it all. And I understand that, but some people knew exactly what they were doing. And they were trying to keep the church from gathering in Christ's name. And it's happened throughout history. But if you have the chance and you want to watch something uh, good and, and, and uh, thought-provoking, uh, watch the movie The Essential Church. Uh, that was two pl- I, Man, I've done a couple of those today. I don't normally do that. Paul wrote when he, he, he spoke to perhaps our time and times past. We know that this is, you know, things that are happening today weren't, aren't new. There, there's nothing new under the sun. The Satan is always coming against and trying to entice people. But 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, you remember that passage. It says, for a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So bold preaching means to preach the gospel of God, the word of God. Also, Paul's preaching was characterized by devotion and purity. And he wasn't deceptive. He wasn't trying to trick them. He wasn't trying to do a bait and switch and try and get people to follow him. So when you look at verse 3, he says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Exhortation, uh, pericalesis, it's a persuasive discourse. It's a stirring address. I mean, you can hear people, they can, they can drive you to tears. They can, they can encourage you. They can inspire you. You can watch a great movie once in a while. But only the Word of God really lasts. Only the Word of God really has a long-term effect on us. And so it, wasn't, it was characterized by devotion and purity. And he wasn't being deceptive. And he says it did not come from error or uncleanness. In other words, Paul was delivering a message that had pure doctrine and motive. He wasn't wandering off into a wrong opinion and he did not have impure motives and he was willing to say that publicly. You see, pastors and teachers, we're not to add or take away from the Word of God. That means we're not to avoid the controversial subjects in the Bible for fear of offending some. We're not to preach our own ideas or theological fads in order to appear well-read. We're not to seek Uh, to strengthen our positions 
to secure personal acceptance in order to gain a personal following. And social media makes that so easy. How many likes did I have? I just posted a picture of my life, a personal picture, and then I'm so quick to check how many likes and loves and thumbs ups I got. And, we're, and so we're set up for failure in that regard. I'm not saying that's wrong to do it. I do it. I have a Facebook account. I hate to admit it. Uh, I have it turned off most of the time. But we're so prone and now we're so set up for this narcissism. Not just pastors, but everyone who has one of these devices, which, guess what? You cannot control these, by the way. Have you tried? Have you noticed? You can't control them. If you have it and it's on and it's near you, you're going to go to it. And that's the world we're living in. I'm not saying it's wrong to have one, but recognize you can't control it in your own strength. And it can control you real easy. You guys know that. And so he says he's not preaching from uncleanness that's moral impurity or impure motives. We're not sure. He's kind of vague in that sense. Whether Paul was being accused of sexual immorality, we don't know. But he's apparently quoting the language of his critics. As we mentioned last week, Thessalonica was a hotbed of religious cults, gods, and temples, ranging from Greek to Roman gods, the mystery religions, Egyptian gods, the imperial cult. You know what? They had it all. Anything you wanted, any kind of religion under the sun, it was available to you in that time. And apparently there were men on every street corner seeking to proselytize people and to get people to follow them. Uh, one writer put it this way, uh, Neil, he wrote this. He said, there, was, or, there has probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, and sincere and spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints, jostled and clamored for the attention of the believing and the skeptical. It makes you wonder, right? It makes you think about all the things you have to say no to. All the stuff, the information that can come into your mind and through your eyes that you have to say no to. And the only way you're going to be able to filter it properly, whether you do can say no, is because of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within you and the Word of God. And so we need it. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says this. Warren Wiersbe wrote that Paul did not use guile or trickery to win converts. The word translated guile carries the idea of baiting a hook. In other words, Paul did not trap people into being saved. The way a clever salesman traps people into buying a product. You ever bought that uh, you know, vacuum cleaner or those encyclopedias? Remember those guys used to go around the encyclopedias? I still have some. Anyway. Um, but, you know, spiritual witnessing, he makes a good point. He says this, spiritual witnessing and Christian salesmanship are different. Salvation does not lie at the end of a clever argument or a subtle presentation. Boy, that's something to think about, isn't it? You may or may not agree with that, but that's certainly something to think about. But he does make the point that we see in verse 5 of, of chapter 1. This salvation is always the result of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't always explain it, but that's how it works. So we need to be careful how we present the gospel 
than the message. Next, he talks about a preacher is not the preaching that has a devotion to God and is not what we call man-pleasing. Look at verse 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. To be approved by God is to allow, to recognize a genu- by genuine a- examination and to approve and to deem worthy. And then he says to be entrusted or to be put in trust with the gospel. And that's very humbling. Again, we've talked about all the pitfalls of, you know, bringing self-gratification, wanting to bring followers unto you, making up uh, situations, trying to create things that aren't in the Bible. And he says, no, we've been given, we've been entrusted by God himself. And so he says, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we can lie to ourselves, we can lie to each other, but God tests our hearts. And he will refine our hearts. We know that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 But we also know that God tests our hearts. And he will recognize what is genuine in us. And that will be the basis of our examination when we go to stand before Christ at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And that will be the things that we did from a true heart for God and not our own motives. So the question might be, what kind of motivation does it take? And we're consider, when you consider Paul and his, his uh, companions, what kind of motivation does it take to be willing to be persecuted, beaten, slandered, and subject to being shouted down by a mob for the sake of bringing the gospel? And the only answer he can come up with, and I think it's the, it's the most per- perfect answer, Paul did this because he knew he had God's approval to do it. He didn't need the approval of men. He simply lived his life in union with Jesus. And in doing so, this changed the way he lived. And that's how we are to live. To please the Lord. And it will change the way that we live. Romans 8.31, Paul wrote this. He said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so Paul had devotion to God. He was not pleasing for man. And then notice in verse 5, sincere speech and motive. He was being sincere. He says, For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is a witness. Flattering words. These are, we know what it is. It's false praise. It's something you say to somebody to be pleasing to their ego or their pride. It's how we want to try to be liked by everyone. Staying, you know, the middle road on everything in life. So that every, we don't have any enemies. We're, we can be very slow to make decisions in order to see which way the wind is blowing. It's election year. Warren Wearsby said this, A flatterer is a person who manipulates rather than communicates. A flatterer can use either truth or lies to achieve his unholy purpose, which is to control your decisions for his own profit. And Paul says, I'm not doing that. I'm coming to you with sincere speech and my motive. And I'm not using flattery to try and hide what's really, you know, sometimes people can use flattering speech to cover over what we see as covetousness. They can put a pretended cause 
when actually they have a greedy desire for more, which is what covetousness is. Paul and his companions were not greedy, nor did they use any pretext to disguise greediness. And this was a very common practice, again, uh, among the traveling philosophers. You know, most of us can see things for what they are, can't we? I mean, we've been exposed to enough false teaching and enough, uh, you know, advertisements that for the most part, we can tell when somebody's out to make a buck off of us. And when you take that and you transfer that over to religious practices and faith and even into the Christian world, it's, it's, it's wrong. It's just flat out wrong. And so Paul says, I've come, we've come to you with sincere speech and motive. But remember, that's what his enemies were saying against him. And so that's the reason why he's saying all this. But I'm glad he said it because it shows us how we should be as pastors and teachers of God's word. See, God's word does not return void in any person's life. And then in verse 6, he says, we're not seeking man's approval, similar to what he said earlier, not being a man pleaser. He said, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. One of the best verses, if you're taking notes, if you you find yourself as a Christian caught in a trap of people-pleasing, Sometimes you find yourself in that place, probably by my own doing, your own doing. And so let's consider a wise perspective on those of us caught in people-pleasing. And that is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. He said, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He's, a, he's an apostle, but so are you. You, you, know, you are a steward of God's truth. You're to bring the good news to others around you. Moreover, it is required in stewards that we be found faithful. But, he says in verse 3, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. The point being is, you and I, when we, Paul would say it, we can say it. Whenever we get caught in this people-pleasing, and I'm not talking about trying to cover sin or do something wrong. Whenever we get caught in this people-pleasing mode, and particularly for those who don't like what we have to say as Christians, whether that's our relatives, our co-workers, our neighbors, we're not to be obnoxious, but we are to put what the Lord thinks of us above everything else. And do we care about what other people think? Yes, we do, but a very little compared to how we care about what Jesus thinks. As he said, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. And so Paul was not seeking man's approval. He was also not an authoritarian. I mean, you might, you might get the wrong impression about Paul that he would, you know, just come, he would show up and, uh, you know, he was royalty and, oh, the Apostle Paul, you know, where's he going to stay tonight? He gets the best place. It's the, the best fancy, most fancy seat at the table. He was not an authoritarian. He says that we might have had made demands as apostles of Christ. In other words, he says, look, because the Lord has commissioned me to do the work that I'm doing, if I was so desirous, I could have sort of thrown my weight around and, and not had to do so much. And what he's referring to is the fact that he's going to be bivocational. He's going to have, uh, he's going to have another job so the church doesn't have to support him. 
And he says, uh, we, we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But they chose to appeal to the Thessalonians as their friends. A very important thing to remember, for all of us to remember, that we're friends together. You know, whatever my position is, whatever you serve, however you may serve in this church, we're friends in the Lord, and the Lord is our friend. And so there's not this hierarchy, there's not this high and low um, esteemed positions by any of us. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, he says, As an apostle who had been handpicked by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform astonishing miracles, and acknowledged as an authority by other churches, he had the right to first-class treatment. Instead, he served the Thessalonians with humility. He didn't seek glory from men nor play the apostle card. Abusing authority is a particular powerful temptation for spiritual leaders because they tend to place them on a pedestal. And who doesn't like to be looked up to? But this kind of authoritarian style can lead to rudeness, dictatorial methods, and the loss of accountability. And when that happens, the clock starts ticking toward a leadership and organizational explosion and collapse. You know, there's so much written these days and there's so much to be known and some of you have had personal experiences with church splits. And you've seen what happens when leadership goes off the deep end and starts becoming rude and authoritarian and distant from everybody. I mean, that's, that's not the place to be. And you have every right in the world to hold me accountable to that. You know, if I'm not spending enough time or I, I tend to want to keep things at a professional distance, there's a place for that. But, you know, as we get to know one another, you should have, this is a small church. You can talk to the pastor anytime you want. You can talk to Pastor John. It doesn't matter. We're not like, you know, we want to be among you. And it doesn't always fit well. I mean, we all have, we're all different kind of people. But the point is the biblical response to being a leader in a local church is to be among the people. And so that's what Paul was speaking about. And so everyone, this is not to be taken lightly, everyone uh, has a biblical standard to be expected and held accountable to. Not just me, but all of us. Next we see Paul's pastoral ministry. We've talked about his preaching ministry. Now we're going to talk uh, for a while about his pastoral ministry. And his focus was on shepherding the flock as a family and not as a business. It is so easy to fall into that trap for all of us. Oh, wouldn't it be great? We've got five acres of property back here. Oh, what's the Lord going to do? You know, it's so easy to get carried away in our thoughts. I'm just being honest with you. But this is not a business. This is a family. And so even though Paul had a very thorough answer for all of his critics... The good work that God was doing at Thessalonica was directly tied to the personal relationships the apostle and his companions had with them. I like what one writer said. Relationships are more important to good leadership than temperament, technique, and intelligence. This is something I've learned myself over several decades, Chuck Swindoll of Pastoral Ministry. And so verses 7 through 12, he's going to now, he's going to, he's going to use some uh, illustrations as to how to minister. And he's going to use, talk about a, a nursing mother, a, a working brother, and a father. You know, kind of a, a family approach. And so, first of all, in verse 7, 
he talks about ministering with a motherly love and affection. He says, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. The word gentle means mild. Second uh, Timothy 2.24 says, and a, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all to be able to teach and to be patient. One of the, one of the qualifications. But notice he says, as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Paul and his companions were sensitive to the needs, even when they had to deal with the complaints. You know, that's one of, one of the first things they tell you when you become a pastor. They give you this, uh, uh, you go down to the deep south and they give you this new bucket to wash feet and they give you a pack of band-aids. And they say that's for when you get stabbed in the back. <laughs> so they kind of make a joke out of it. And so if you want to be a pastor, you can't be one who wants to uh, never have complaints. Never hear any grumbling, complaining, uh, because it's part, of the, it's part of what comes with the, the calling. And so he says, we were gentle as nursing mother who cherishes her own children. Think about it. Moms and even dads, but moms, you know, you don't hate that little baby. You might be tired when they wake you up in the middle of the night, but you're not, you're not going to be mad at them for crying out to you. They need your attention and their care. And you're not going to resent the fact that you're a mother. You've been given a God. God has given you such an awesome responsibility and privilege to raise those children. And so Paul is he's saying this is the way that they think about it. This is the way they approach ministry. Ministering as a mother with motherly love and affection. Jesus did the same thing as he ministered to his disciples. He gently and patiently moved them towards maturity. That was Jesus' mode of operation when he was among his people. In his, his earthly ministry, his three years. In John 21, we have Jesus, the risen Jesus, appeared for them for the third time. And as he prepared breakfast for his disciples on the shore of Galilee, you remember that story? They came in and they're like, who's that? Who's that? Hey, that's the Lord. He's got a fire going. He's cooking fish for him. And when he restored Peter to fellowship, he told Peter three times, he said, feed my lambs. You know, Peter was already, they were having this back and forth about, do you love me, Peter? Yes. And then he said three times, Jesus' charge to Peter was, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And so the Lord, uh, you know, he gives us that heart for the people. Notice also he says in verse 8, so affectionately longing for you that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. You know, he was looking back, and, and, and think about it, he only spent maybe three or four weeks with these folks. You know, it was a sweet time. He was being, yeah, he was run out of town, but he loved the work that was happening among that church, and he's heard the reports of how it's going and how they're continuing to be faithful. He says, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Jesus didn't come just with words and platitudes. He came with his life. He gave his life as a ransom. Jesus Christ embodies the definition of Christian love that he calls each one of us to. And even though Paul's visit was short, as we said, he lived among them and not above them. They were able to get close to him. As I said earlier, sometimes leaders, sometimes in our insecurity, and especially when I first started to be a part of it, be the senior pastor here, you have this insecurity, and you want to try to maintain a safe distance from people. 
And that's not the way to go. Uh, you know, I don't have the right to just always be guarding my personal space and clinging to a strictly professional relationship. The Lord's working on me in this area, folks. You guys know it. I mean, I, you, you'll be the judge. Also, it says here in verse 9, he came with brotherly service working alongside them. He says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. His calling was a calling for love. It wasn't a career choice. The reason why we have so many pastors in our day who go to seminary because they think the Lord has called them into the, into the uh, you know, to be a professional pastor and they realize that it's not working out and they end up quitting the ministry sometimes early, sometimes later is because they were never truly, it was never a calling of love. It was a career choice. And that'll never take you very far. If that's all you're called for is to receive a paycheck as a spiritual leader, as a pastor, it's not going to take you far. We also know that Paul was a tent maker. This was a young church. He was bivocational. Paul's, Paul's schedule wasn't a five-day work week, uh, as John Walford said. He didn't punch in for a 40-hour week. Um, he didn't just work to four or five, uh, five o'clock he worked until dark. He never had the rest of the day for himself. Now, I'm fortunate. I can't say that I'm like Paul. I'm very fortunate to be able to serve you full-time in this ministry. But there's many and many, many bivocational pastors out there. And the two pastors that preceded me started out the same way. They were bivocational, Pastor Keith and Pastor Nick, until he came on full-time. And so I thank the Lord. I thank the Lord for his provision. And I thank you guys as well. He says that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. He didn't want to load him up. Now he could have received a salary. He writes later about that. He could have received compensation for teaching. But he chose not to. Paul preached in the synagogue on three consecutive Saturdays. But in between that time, this is something so important to remember. It's not like he only spoke at those synagogues three Saturdays. In between that three-week time, as we're in this book, this letter, he spent countless hours among the great multitude of people, mostly Gentiles, who became converts in that city. And this is what got them all upset. And, you know, uh, he, was led to, he was driven out of town because the Jews were getting jealous of the following that Paul had. And so they went to this house of Jason looking for Paul, and he wasn't there. He'd already been... Uh, Pushed, he'd already been driven or taken away by his uh, brethren. And they started a riot. And then he writes in verse 10, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we be behaved ourselves among you who believe. And so now he's talking about pastoral integrity. When he says you are our witnesses in God, also he's simply stating what's already known. He's, you know, whatever he's saying, he's not out there to be a phony. Revelation 1.5 says, from, the, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our witness. And, but notice there was responsibility. And this goes to all of us. He says, how devoutly, 
how devoutly, justly, and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you. So our walk with the Lord does come with responsibilities. We're to be holy and set apart. We're to live upright lives. We, we shouldn't give extra reasons for people to accuse us of doing things that are wrong. We should have no cause for censure. Whatever your life, whatever your private life involves. Notice he says, next in verse 11, so he was, he was just talking about, you know, verse 10 about working alongside as a brother. Now he's talking about fatherly leadership and exhortation. Fatherly leadership. I don't have to inform you of what happens to a culture and a society that loses the fathers, where the fathers are no longer present in the home and, you know, leading their families. I don't have to remind you of the devastation that it has caused our society and many societies. And the same is true in our witness and as we work with each other, this fatherly leadership is so important. And so he says, how uh, he, he basically goes through how a father instructs. And so for you who are fathers in here or even grandfathers, this is an, uh, another uh, template for how we are to instruct our family our, and lead our families. First of all, it's to be exhorted. He says, how we exhorted you. To admonish somebody without having to necessarily raise their voice into the, you know, through the roof and start a shouting match. So we're to admonish and, to, and to, to be strong, but we're also to be comforters, to be able to speak soothingly and be calm and encouraging to those who have been charged. He says, and he says, I charge everyone. So we exhort, we comfort, and we challenge. That's the father's role, is to challenge his children, to live up to the calling that they have. And for you and I, you know, how that would relate to us is we are to challenge one another and charge one another to bear witness, to bear witness of the work that the Lord is doing in our lives. And he says it as a father does his own children. So there's a little bonus material for us dads and grandfathers. John Corson wrote this. He said, Paul was a wonderful model for all who served the Lord. Oh, that we, mean, we, all of us, might be like nursing mothers who aren't angry with the demands and cries of their children, like brothers who are working together and relating to one another, and like fathers who are not afraid to speak the truth. And then finally in verse 12, he says that we would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this should be the father's motivation is that you would walk worthily of God, that you would, that you, would you know, as a, as a pastor, as a leader, as a Bible teacher, whoever you are and whoever you have leadership over as a Christian, your desire is for them to walk worthily to God, of God, to fulfill their calling. And then he says, and calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In other words, he, he doesn't just leave it with him. He points them to God and God's promises. And those are the things that we take into our daily lives, God's promises. It's been appointed for you as a child of God. It's been promised to be true, the things of the Lord. It's a condition that we have of eternal blessedness. There's going to be no more tears, no more sins, no more sickness, disease, or heartache in our promise of heaven. Amen. And you can enjoy it now when you think about it, can't you? 
And we, you and I, can encourage each other with it. In closing, and uh, we went a little bit long today, but the importance of relationships. It's so important. Uh, You guys know that because you're here. Every so often I attend this, what we call a pastor's huddle. We get together, several of the regional Calvary Chapel pastors, we meet together uh, on a regular basis. And we go around the room and we're asked about, you know, what's working in our fellowships. And we could certainly go on to the negative, but we try to stay on the positive side. Hey, what's working in your fellowship? And lately my reply has been that relationships are what's working in the fellowship. And folks, I want to tell you, I am very encouraged for what I am seeing. How we're growing together and we're growing closer together here at Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City. Uh, We know, we all know we're not perfect. And perhaps there are some that don't feel the way that I do. I want to recognize that. But I don't think I'm imagining these things either. I think when I see what happens, when I see fellowships come together, I see people and families working together together. It brings joy to my heart and it gives me the reason to say, hey, well, you know what's working in our fellowship? Relationships are working. And the reason it is is because God is among us. God is working. It's not because, you know, certainly not because of me and it's not because of you either. It's because of what God is doing in your lives and the Word of God. So let me encourage you to continue investing in one another's lives. You know, some of us, all of us, we're holding back from certain people. Don't hold back. Ask the Lord to show how you can invest, how you can come alongside and do what God's called us to do, and that's to make disciples. Amen? Amen. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time today. We ask, Lord, that you would go before us as we carry on our week. We have a week full of busy schedule, maybe perhaps ahead of us, Lord. There may be somebody here that's getting ready to go for a doctor's appointment and they're apprehensive about that. There may be somebody here that's starting a new job or somebody who's thinking about moving to a new place or, you know, having arrived here, maybe fresh in the area. Uh, There's a lot of challenges we have each and every week. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that our time spent together here will go a long way towards helping us to live out our calling as brothers and sisters in the Lord, as we seek to honor you and bring glory to you and tell others about your goodness and the, the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. So please go before us. Lord, also, we ask a special blessing to be upon the households who couldn't be here today, those who are dealing with sickness, uh, types of different types of illness, those who are on travel, uh, those who are concerned and preparing uh, before their travels, uh, all the situations that you're aware of, Lord. We ask that you go before them as well. And we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, let's stand and close with a worship song.
Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.